Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, are you psyched that we are doing episode 007? Very psyched that we are doing episode 007. <laughs> yes, 007, my favorite number. So we're going to hear about your, your James Bond class at some point, I hope. Sure. <laughs> nice. Um, and I am joined uh, also by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? You know, I'm good. It's a uh, fall break here at WashU, so I did not have to dress up to come into the office to record, and no one is here. It's extra quiet, so I feel good about that. So today on the podcast, we are trying a novel framework. Um, we normally do three different segments on three different topics. Today, all of our topics have somewhat to do with the concept of ethics. So we will talk about Nick Rideout's Theater and Ethics, a, um, uh, his contribution to the Paul Graves series Theater and... We will also talk about trigger warnings and specifically how this controversial issue shakes out in theater and performance pedagogy. And we will talk about casting diversity and the politics of representation. How does the uh, phenomenon of controversies regarding the casting of, of theater and performance with regards to race and ethnicity shake out differently in college and university performances? Before we get to these three ethical topics, um, let us in no particularly ethical way round up recent news happenings in the field. The MacArthur Foundation Awards were uh, announced in September, and these included a couple of names that should be familiar to ONTAP listeners. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the playwright known for Appropriate and An Octoroon, is an awardee as is Anne Basting, professor of theater in the Peck School of Arts at University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Professor Basting has used theater making and storytelling techniques to develop new therapies and art pieces with older people suffering cognitive impairment. So congrats to them. I was disappointed not to get the call this year about the MacArthur Award, but <laughs> I'm used to it. And we're also past the Nobel announcement. So, you know, yeah, it's, I, uh, I don't you know. know it's, I don't know when they're going to pick up my book and realize what they're missing. Indeed. Hey, so what are your thoughts on Bob Dylan uh, winning the Nobel, uh, Nobel Prize for literature? Oh, I, that's... I don't know. I, I, I've never been one of these people who has a particular uh, feeling about Bob Dylan, so I think I'm inclined to be a bit curmudgeonly about it. I don't really care, and I feel like there are plenty of people writing novels and, and plays and poems who might get that award. I I think it's very interesting the... Uh, flavors of resistance or critique of Dylan. Right. One of which is uh, claiming him as outside the realm of literature, specifically because of his status as a performer. And right. so I find that whether my own personal feelings about Dylan or not Dylan or the Nobel Prize aside, uh, I think I think that question of performance and and also the the popular versus the you know versus the elite uh, in terms of literary accessibility and uh, pervasiveness. I, I think it, it brings his, his nomination or his award brings a whole bunch of interesting questions to the fore, which right. is in these mm -hmm. really elite awards that almost are, are so competitive and, and, and elitist as to have no real context in any 
meaning um, because one could name a hundred worthy people for every, right. you know, winner at least. One of the questions is, okay, so, you know, why is there this objection? What does it say about right. the role of performance and, and our attachment to the popular over high culture? And, and really for me is like, why Dylan, why now is a really <laughs> That's a good point. Invocation, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, like, it's not like the body of literature wasn't there and it's not like there aren't other worthy uh, contributions to be considered. So I think as an open topic, maybe that's something we should pursue in the future is sort of looking at, at these awards sure. in particular. But I, I find it yeah, really I quite mean, fascinating, uh, though I Har- remain Harvey, somewhat agnostic in yeah. the actual awarding. Harvey, do you have a dog in this fight? Nope, not really. <laughs> um, fortunately, we do not have to, we do not have to adjudicate it. Um, uh, other news that's happened recently, Yale Repertory Theater um, commemorated its 50th anniversary earlier this month. Um, there was an article about this in the New York Times. Uh, it covered the gathering of past and present leaders of the theater. Um, and it included the announcement that James Bundy will continue on as artistic director and dean of the Yale School of Drama for another five seasons. And there was in this Times article the sort of requisite gloomy discussion about the uh, future prospects for regional theater in America. Taylor Mack performed his show, A 24-Decade History of Popular Music at St. Anne's Warehouse in New York. The marathon version of this production took place October 8th and 9th, and many of our colleagues and friends were there. Um, Jennifer Parker Starbuck and Lisa Freeman both posted nice long essay responses to uh, viewing this amazing performance. This, I feel like it, it, it rivals Hamilton in terms of spectator envy. It's one of those shows that I just would have loved to move things around to to go to be able to see but reading those essays and and looking at the photographs and and interviews about it is a is a nice substitute for that finally we wanted to note that philip zarilli's retirement and and career at the University of Exeter was commemorated, I believe, earlier, actually last week. There was an event at University of Exeter. He taught there from 2000 to 2013. Zerilli is a true artist scholar. Um, He's known for his directing, for uh, acting, for acting pedagogy, and copious scholarship as well, especially on the topics of phenomenology and acting and uh, Kathkali dance drama. So a real range of expertise and a real um, a, a career that really integrates scholarly and artistic production. So first on the agenda for us is Nick Rideout's volume Theater and Ethics. This book was brought to our attention by DJ Hopkins um, in our ATHA show. DJ mentioned that this is a text that he really enjoys assigning to students in a a theater survey class, a two-semester theater survey class at San Diego State University. So we wanted to pick this up and check it out. It's a really great small but but very substantive volume that surveys the intersection between theater and ethics in different historical periods. Harvey, why don't you lead us off? What did you think reading this book? Yeah, totally. Uh, so Theater and Ethics is part of it's Paul Gray's Theater and series. And for those unfamiliar with the series, it's essentially a collection of 
about 17,000 to about 19,000 word um, uh, like sort of extended meditations, you know, on, on, on topics in the intersection with theater. Uh, so the challenge for the author is, do you, with those 17 to 19,000 words, you know, do you essentially offer an expanded version of an article or, you know, do you sort of strive to uh, create a sort of dynamic reading experience that's more like a book that uh, is expansive in scope um, and seeks to engage in a number of uh, different discussions, right? So what Nick Rideout does in this book is he does the latter, right? It's, it's a uh, ambitious project and it's an impressive project as well because he's looking at sort of the relationship between ethics, uh, looking at the classical era, the modern, kind of kind of an expanded modern moment, and then what he identifies as the current contemporary postmodern now, uh, and looks at how theater uh, invites a consideration of relationships that can be a commentary on uh, not just an individual's perspective on self, but also a person's relationality to others, right? Um, so that's what he does with this. But what are your thoughts on this, Sarah, p- panel? Well, I... I- I too, I, I think it's a kind of a, a shocking choice for the series, right? Given that the the book itself is is so small, and yet I think Nick builds on a, a a pretty substantial body of work that he's created outside the book and points to a number of important works uh, in other places that really help build into the argument here. I think it might be difficult to to really get a hold of just just the significance of what he's saying if you're only reading the, the theater and ethics, but within a kind of larger framework of his own work and, and other kind of critical studies. Uh, I think he does a, a really amazing job. I was struck by two, two things. One is because DJ brought this up in the context of teaching, which I was familiar with the book before, but would never have occurred to me to teach. And reading it with that in mind, it occurred to me that uh, I think one of the real values of this is his unpacking of Plato Yes. In relation mm-hmm. to theater and theater history, I think is a really extraordinarily lucid, detailed, yet concise description. And I, I can imagine that teaching incredibly well at a variety of, of you know, learning levels. Um, and so I would absolutely look forward to teaching that. I did find it also in the postmodern section somewhat ironic to be invoking Marina Abramovich as an ethical... Uh, as, as, as someone to aspire to the ethics of, right? I don't know exactly what the <laughs> noun is there. And to be fair, you know, Nick points to Peggy Phelan's writing about Marina Abramovich in a very specific context, which is her room with an ocean view. But I, I just, I was sort of floored by that description of, of Abramovich's work. And this, this book comes out in what? 2009. What's that? Why is that? Because I think, I, I, I'm curious to know why that's counterintuitive, partly because I think of, you know, Marina Abramovich's retrospective at MoMA and the artist is present. In a way, it's this intense focus on face-to-face encounters. Right. And so to me, in the middle of a con- of a discussion about Levinas, which is, you know, about confronting the face of the other, that seemed uh, totally appropriate. But why, why was it odd to see her held up as an ethical exemplar? Well, I, oh, exemplar. Thank you for the noun I could not (laughs) not come up with. Uh, Two reasons. One is I think within the context of Levinas, yes, uh, though the question of this quote other, I I think requires a a, a fuller thinking through on my part. I'm not saying that it's wrong in this instance. I just, I need more time to to go back Mm -hmm. and look at that. 
I think my my reaction, and this this may turn me from a scholarly conversation to a more popular one, is the the plethora of information and evidence about how Marina Abramovich has interacted with her re-performers and the yes. people that huh. she's trained right. and yeah. what it takes to do that and her, you know, compensation strategies, shall we say, in terms of, sure. you know, not working with professional performers because of what she would have to pay them. And, you know, yeah. there's a, you know, especially the account of the, the I think it was the L.A., Modern Art Gala, where you know people felt quite exploited as you know table dressing, right, uh, for attendees of the gala. Uh, a whole lot of things yeah. around uh, sort of what I would consider ethical questions. So, of course, in the context of this piece, I totally I think it plays very well, and that's certainly yeah. what Phelan is talking about. And and so one can hardly fault fault right out for making the rhetorical argument. I just I felt the need to as I was reading to, to sort of put in a footnote of like, oh, but this means we have to completely overlook <laughs> some of <laughs> yeah. the other things that are happening in the world yeah. of Marina Abramovich, no? Yes. Sure, but it, it, well, and it, it also points out the um, the sort of scope of the book. And as Harvey said, it really is sort of a, you know, it's an essay um, because of the, the um, constraints put on how long it is. And I think that Nick focuses on the spectator performer um, situation and the notion of theater as an institution that either um, has moral or immoral or rather ethical or unethical results. And so consequently, all sorts of different ethical um, quandaries that come up in a life in art, in a life in theater are not mentioned. And these, you know, in our later segments, we get into some of these, you know, how do you treat actors? How do you uh, pay people? Um, how do you, you know, try to encounter these messy situations in art making in ways that are, that incline us to lead better lives? Um, but that does set up, I mean, to hear you frame it that way, panel, I, th- I think is exactly right. And, and, and yet at the same time begs the question of, at what point do we separate, in the context of ethics, art as object from art as process? And is it is it still valid to right. ask and question the ethics of a work from a purely rhetorical theoretical perspective, uh, invoking philosophies, without at the same time having to negotiate the, the sort of hoary details of the actual bodies that are at stake, both the performers and audience members. And, and that I found to be uh, a really compelling, I think, philosophical underlying right. question in that the book doesn't doesn't bring to the fore and I think does a really beautiful job in, in terms of the philosophy, but doesn't. But mm-hmm. I, I really felt like that was something that was that was missing in this in this discussion or that I kept mm-hmm. feeling compelled to invoke. Well, yeah, I, I kept thinking uh, I was trying to imagine a scenario um, or an instance of a play in which I could not use the lens of ethics to sort of engage uh, the content. You know, so it's some, I'm just trying to think, like, if I just randomly picked a play out of a box, um, you know, does every th- theatrical performance, uh, because of its um, requirement that an audience uh, is present, you know, uh, and co-witnessing a performance, does that automatically just kind of open itself up to um, a person's own interpretive reading of sort of ethics as presented on stage. You get the sense with the concluding 
questions and line of argument in the book. And, and Nick sort of wraps up, you know, he looks at a few different um, pieces of contemporary performance, uh, or actually he looks at writing about contemporary performance and ends with this sort of provocative statement that because we, because according to Levinas, we have an ethical, we are inclined towards an ethical consciousness or we're inclined towards um, an ethical project when we are confronted by something other to ourselves, that it's when theater abandons self-conscious ethical projects that theater becomes ethical. That's a, you know, rough, my own rough approximation of that argument. In my mind, I think that does confirm your reading of it Harvey, which is the, or at least that that would suggest that your reading is in line with what Nick is suggesting, which is that there isn't, there aren't plays that are necessarily more or less ethical from that point of view. And in fact, if you're not, if it's not Brecht, right, or not some, you know, 18th century middle class drama that has a kind of uh, deliberate moral agenda, right, then you're perhaps more open to the type of Levinasian mm-hmm. um, appreciation of being confronted with another in ways that you can't ignore because it's not packaged for you, right? Um, I feel like that's pretty compelling. It, it ends up, it could be, end up being appropriated as a, an alibi for theater that was amoral, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that if you have something that stylizes violence and uh, toxic sexuality if you have something that's I don't know propagandistic and oriented with negative politics then I think you could end up saying well you know this is amoral and therefore highly ethical <laughs> um, yes but I, don't, I don't I don't think that I think that's one possible right. line response to to write out um, it is interesting to to look at the that this book in juxtaposition, in juxtaposition with Jacques Rancière's uh, *The Emancipated Spectator*, both of which come out in 2009, um, although Rancière's book is a collection of essays that he had been developing, I believe, since 2003 or 2004. Um, but the the negotiation of of, uh, of ethics and politics that Rideout uh, nego- you know begins with and sort of works through uh, in the you know, kind of classical and modern sections of the book have a really interesting kind of parallel to the essay, The Emancipated Spectator in, in Ranciere's book in terms of the way in which theater renegotiates questions of ethical responsibility and political engagement. Uh, and both of these works, I think, push towards a moment in which the, which is our contemporary moment, which kind of goes back to things we've talked about in other podcasts, which is the the simple fact that we are all spectating all the time and how does one form particular kind of communal relationships around that engagement when it seems to be almost a default position in yes. a kind of contemporary mediatized culture. And that I also think is where write out becomes a useful way of thinking through that question as well. Well, with that sort of setting the table for a uh, philosophically and historically informed look at the idea of theater and ethics together. 
Um, why don't we move on to our next topic, which is very much um, in the sort of ethical universe of practice and pedagogy. We're late to the party on this conversation, but we believed that the the, the controversy about trigger warnings uh, was something that might have a special applicability for theater and performance studies, scholars and artists. The, you know, we can or I, I don't know, maybe we'll get into the sort of general contentiousness of this issue, whether or not having trigger warnings announced in class is a good idea or a silly idea. Um, but it occurs to us that you know, dramatic literature is frequently violent. Um, there's frequently situations that could be, for a lack of a better word, triggering for people who've suffered uh, violent situations or sexual assault. Um, and so because we are frequently teaching plays that have situations content like this, because in directing student actors, we end up with situations in which you have to think about their experience, we thought that we would talk about it on the podcast. So I guess the question that we have is, what are the ethics surrounding um, teaching or directing moments that might trigger uh, traumatic recall in students? Sarah, do you want to lead us off here? Sure. Well, you know, as I was thinking about this, it seems to me that, and I still have not found a good statement of this, Maybe, maybe either of you have, but it seems to me when people say trigger warnings, they really mean one of a few different things. Uh, so everything from a kind of, you know, almost like a, you know, like the announcements they have before speed bumps, right? Like a heads up in a syllabus of <laughs> yes. here's kind of what's coming. You might want to yeah. slow your car down a little bit, you know, you know, lest you bang on it. Um, yeah. To uh, having trigger warnings function as a kind of opt-out mechanism where you know, here's what's coming, and if you don't want that, then here are the other options to, I think, the most radical, which I don't actually know if it's in practice anywhere, but it seems to me that one of the fears that gets presented in the argument against trigger warnings is um, the idea that uh, everything, that the the very notion of a trigger warning, um, that things, you know, might be ahead, then basically allows almost anybody to bail out of the enterprise right. um, and thereby create a situation in which material is not getting onto the syllabus because it might require, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think that these these three ideas about what a trigger warning does float around rather interchangeably in the discourse. And it seems to me that, you know, the University of Chicago uh, with the, the, you know, welcoming statement to new first-year students kind of positioned all trigger warnings as automatically being the third the third scenario, right? So to have any trigger warnings is to invite censorship and, uh, and a lack of challenge and a lack of, you know, rigor and to take students only in, into their comfort zones. Um, and so they weren't going to do it at all. And it just seems to me that forms of trigger uh, uh, you know, warnings or statements about material that's coming ahead have always been a part of, in some ways, what we've what we've done in in theater and performance. Um, I would say, particularly in uh, you know acting uh, and directing situations, where you know finding making sure that people are prepared to do the kind of work that is required, and thinking very carefully about you know 
what do you want 18 to 22 year olds, particularly in an undergraduate program, to to be compelled to do and being aware right. of the power dynamics that exist? And so, yeah, so I don't know. Have either of you used uh, trigger warnings in your syllabus? And, and to what extent do you feel like those have been effective or, or, or necessary? I haven't. Panel, have you? You know, I have adopted just the language in class it's in my in my comedy class there's a lot of um material that not a lot but we teach andrew dice clay and patrice o'neill and i tell them you know i tell the students at the beginning of class look the material in this class includes some r-rated stuff there's definitely some sexist humor there's definitely some racist humor if that is going to cause you issues you should you know talk to me and and we'll see if there's something that we can do the students almost all are fine with what comes and I don't think that there's really a problem with letting them know ahead of time that such stuff is there you know Sarah I think you're right that at this point the 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 controversy if there is one it's all become merged together with this sort of safe spaces rhetoric and microaggressions concern into what I think is just a kind of hysteria over a, really a non-issue in people's everyday teaching lives. It seems, I, I think this is partly a publishing phenomenon where, you know, every few years you get this sort of rash of stories about something about how crazy college students are and how they all, you know, they want to be coddled or they're anti-intellectual, not, not to diminish the notion that we need to keep the ideals of free speech and open expression and open debate um, invigorated in the academy. But I think that this is a lot of sort of sensationalism around a non-issue. On, on, the, other, on the other side of things, people who I've talked to who, under, who understand psychology and the psychology of trauma do point out that there's a kind of fallacy to the notion that violent material, material depicting sexual assault, that that is the, that, that sort of you need to warn about those things in particular. And the way I understand it is that if you're, a, if you're a survivor of a traumatic experience and you have PTSD, there might be a whole range of things that are triggering for you that have nothing to do with the depiction of violence. So that if you were, you know, in a, if you were the victim of a sexual assault and someone was wearing a red shirt, seeing someone in a red shirt may be triggering. And there's not a way to blanket, help people avoid whatever specific or arbitrary triggers they may encounter. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think there's nothing wrong personally with warning students that there's going to be something graphic or upsetting or violent in what they're about to read or watch, etc. But I guess what I, the question that I am interested in hearing from you guys on is specifically whether or not you think in rehearsal or with the material that we teach in theater history classes, you know, I think about Streetcar Named Desire or Sarah right. Kane. These are just some of the, there's a kind of grand, you know, I don't know, Sophoclean tradition of dramatic, of plays culminating with some sort of terrible action that happens to somebody. And is it, do our concerns about students' emotional lives um, change when they are sometimes asked to embody uh, right. victims? of assault or suicidal characters. You know, what are the types of special considerations we should give our students because we are theater and performance professors? Well, I do think that, you know, like the key thing to do is to make sure that there's a, a respectful 
a safe learning environment. And it sounds like that's what you were doing in your, in your class panel, right? When you were saying, hey, everyone, this stuff is R-rated. Uh, this is the type of stuff we will encounter. Um, certainly in the level of a class, right? Having the information down in the syllabus um, and then having people be able to see, okay, week three, week four, week five, this is what we're going to encounter so that there's not that many surprises. Um, I, but I really do think that it's the larger context of, of, of respect, you know, and um, allowing students to feel safe, whether in the rehearsal room or within the classroom. I think that's the key thing. And in many ways, I think tr these trigger warnings are just kind of an instance of one of many things people do to signal a respectful and safe learning environment. Um, I know a lot of universities in the rehearsal room, they will have uh, an external party, like a third person uh, who will be there, you know, for you know, handling these sensitive um, um, issues, right? You know, so not only like scenes of, of violence uh, or abuse, but also um, love scenes, <laughs> right? You know, you know, where it's like, you know, there isn't, uh, it's not framed as being aggressive in any way, you know, but it still um, uh, has a dynamic where you're, you know, having people, you know, we, we, whenever touching is involved, let's put it that way, whenever sort of like, you know, significant touching is involved, you know, and I think that that is helpful. Again, it's all part of this larger sense of, you know, how do you remain, maintain a respectful, safe learning environment? I mean, I did mm -hmm. see a production, a student production of Four Colored Girls, and then there was a trigger sort of warning, trigger uh, uh, where it's like at the curtain speech, you know, there's a long list of all the things that are in and for colored girls, and there's a lot of things that's in for colored girls. Uh, and I did have this moment where I thought, well, you know, how much of this, um, you know, is known by an audience because you know this play yeah. has been produced uh, a lot, quite frequently, you know, for a generation now. So, 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 so that made me wonder in terms of like, you know, what was the curtain speech doing here? Uh, but again, I appreciate the larger context of it, which is to say that you know by standing before an audience and saying, hey, this play deals with the subject issues, it's a sign that the, that the university, you know, cares, you know, about uh, its audiences. Um, and, yeah. and, and ideally, I think that a lot of professional theaters, you know, will make services available, you know, so that's what I've seen occur more frequently than, than, than just the naming of these trigger, you know, warnings uh, to, to yeah. say that, you know, like this play you know, engages these issues and, you know, there are professional personnel, professional staff, you know, who are available after the show, if someone needs to talk to someone, and I think that's but, a more uh, yeah, or, or equally I, I effective guess, approach. <laughs> I guess that's effective. I feel like I, I'm realizing that that those types of pre-show warnings really irritate me. <laughs> that when you see a list of things like there's going to be a fog machine, there's going to be a gunshot. It's like, well, for many of these plays, knowing that a gunshot is coming is going to kind of ruin the audience experience in certain ways, and in a play like for colored girls or or how i learned to drive do you want does the playwright want the sort of central issue that she is step by step walking the audience up towards to be divulged in a printout or a curtain speech before the experience i don't know that stuff i feel like may not give audiences sufficient credit well, I think it's to important process. to recognize that, you know, when we talk about any given audience, we're talking about multiple people and multiple perspectives. That's and, true. You know, if a gunshot, uh, you know, freaks you out, it's good to know that it's there so you can walk away. I, mm -hmm. I will say that when I was a graduate student, I took a class called Women in Film. And one of the films that we watched was the 1970 something. I think it was 75, 76 um, film, I Spit on Your Grave, in which the first half are incredibly realistic depictions of uh, of really brutal rape, kind of with with unrelentingly depicted. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. like you know, 
encounter after encounter after encounter. Um, and not being someone who is particularly triggered by images of sexual violence, uh, thinking of myself as a fairly, you know, sophisticated graduate student, uh, you know, of my early 20s, um, and, and having a real critical framework, I, I found it incredibly difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can imagine that it would have been uh, almost unbearable for many people. Uh, and I think, so, so, there's, so there's that. I think we can't necessarily, you know, uh, you can't make a decision t- that will be suitable for everyone, but I think that's precisely what trigger warnings do, which is to allow people to make their own decisions. I, I will say I have also been privy to examples of male directors compelling female student performers to do things that were outside of not just their comfort zones, but of what I would consider to be appropriate power engagements. Uh, and that also has had, you know, within the context of a rehearsal, including things like, you know, nudity and display um, and sort of sexual presentation. Yeah. And I think we can't underestimate the extent to which a director always has power over a group of bodies and to ensure that that process is, has integrity maintained. And the, yeah. the third thing I would say in response to what you just said, panel, is that I think in addition to thinking about this in terms of, you know, victims and people who suffer, I think it's also really important to remember that there is a, a certain kind of effect that happens when one plays as a perpetrator and what it means to take on acts of violence and bodily aggression, particularly sexual aggression towards right. other people. And yeah. so I think that that also is, and, and we talk a lot about women and you know v- victims of sexual trauma. And I think part of where this discussion has not really been as robust as I think it could be is in the question of, well, what happens to men you know, who are encouraged to perform in these ways? And yes. I think we have to yeah. be mindful of the 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 now completely unethical while well, we're on the subject of ethics but Stanford prison experiments of the 19 yeah. uh, 1970s and you know and that we know that doing things you know physically uh, does affect how we feel and see the world even when we do and do those things under the context of, of pretense so I'm yeah. uh, you know I, I think there is a balance to be struck and it's hard to do it uh, unilaterally I think it always has to be a kind of case by case and I'm Personally, I come down on the side of include it all and announce it all. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly within a learning environment. You know, when when you're doing professional theater, I don't think you have to give away that. You know, like yeah. this is what happens in the third act necessarily. There are usually enough kind of clues, but I think within a college environment, a university environment, or even a graduate conservatory training program, there's a different kind of responsibility that we have mm-hmm. to each other, precisely because we're in a community in which some people are compelled to be there and, and, and also very much at sort of the, uh, at, the, at the weaker end of a power dynamic with people who hold a lot of authority and, and control over what is happening now in their lives and what could happen in the future. Right. That makes sense. And, and, and there is a way in which, you know, as members of a university community, right, our obligation is to sort of help students to, and, and everyone attached to university to become aware of different people's perspectives and experiences, right? You know, and we all mm-hmm. know the case of students who come in, you know, somewhat sheltered, right? Because it's like, you know, in, in some ways, it's like they have a high school experience, right, which can be localized by sort of being, you know, around people who may have had the same experiences as them, right? You know, but then to go into a university where uh, you articulate um, an awareness of, of these many different perspectives and different experiences and how people can respond um, in a variety of ways uh, to these issues uh, is a learning experience. 
Absolutely. Well, why don't we leave that topic there? And the final topic that we wanted to address, also in the realm of ethics and performance practices in um, college theater productions, has to do with casting and diversity. Last year, um, especially, there were numerous casting controversies in American theater. A few of these were happening on college campuses. So I'm thinking in particular of shows in which white actors were cast in roles meant for people of color. So there was the Kent State production of The Mountaintop, uh, where a white actor was cast to play Martin Luther King. Um, And the Clarion University canceled production of Jesus in India, which had a similar situation where quite against the wishes of the playwright, white students were cast to play roles of um, meant for people of color. This, I think, is an ongoing situation. Um, I know that very recently, uh, I believe last month, there was a, a student production of Andrew Lippa's Wild Party at Yale where a, a white woman was cast initially to play um, a, a role meant for a black man, and then there was a sort of uh, discussion and controversy about that, and the, the role was recast. And there's actually a very good article in the Yale student newspaper, the Yale Daily News, um, where the student journalists asked uh, a bunch of people their thoughts on colorblind casting. And so this is an issue that I think is familiar to many of us in theater academia. And I guess the question that I wanted to open with was, assuming that one can draft a basic ethical principle for theater production, such as roles meant for people of color should be cast with act by uh, with actors of color in them assuming that we can agree that that's something that is a best practice and should pretty much always be followed in professional theater how is that how does that principle have to be modified for college theater productions where on the one hand you may have a very small casting pool or a less diverse casting pool than you want Um, and on the other hand where artistic experimentation and failure and um, ill-conceived directing choices are sort of part of what's expected and, and perhaps even a valuable thing in an educational context what do you guys think well okay so I have a question for you panel like so, yes. so I totally get the distinction between professional theater and academic theater. Can right. is it also productive to draw a distinction within academic theater? Uh, because the academic theater, it seems to me, operates uh, across that professional non-professional line, right? right. So, for example, you know, do, do rules they apply differently to a show that you charge for and invite the public to versus? a free experimental, mm-hmm. you know, show with no budget versus a, you know, classroom project that might be open to the public but isn't publicized. I mean, do you, when you sort yeah. of make that distinction between professional and academic, do you do you think that that, do we need to further I, grade it within academia? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable, a really reasonable proposition. And I'm not, and to me, it's not some, I'm not so much sure that it's the issue of the economics of it, you know, whether it's charged or whether the sort of aesthetic that's going for or the production quality that's being aimed at is 
you know, regional theater level professional production, but perhaps the involvement of faculty directors. I, I think in a conservatory where artists are being trained for the professional world and where the director, you know, except in the case of um, directing students, where the director is, you know, a member of the faculty, you kind of have to model the the practices of the professional world to a greater degree. You know, for student-directed studio projects, if someone wants, you know, it, to me it seems like there should be more um, latitude for unconventional choices. You know, perhaps that's one way that you can think about it. I wonder if it's useful to think about it in terms of uh, copyright and fair use, right? So, in other, like, in you other think words, about, def- like, yeah. uh, you know, copyright and intellectual copyright, you know, intellectual property protections. Mm-hmm. It, there's a similar question of intentionality and who gets to do what with creative material. And the mm-hmm. exemption, of course, is, is that you can use a little bit of it or this question of fair use, right? So are you using, you know, or critique? So you can take mm-hmm. copyrighted material and mm-hmm. if you are putting it within a critical framework that is legible, you can repeat it in, in that context. I wonder if, it's, if this might be, I don't know, a way of thinking about, about some of these dynamics. I mean, because it seems to be that there, there are two solutions or you know, two extremes. One is that you can do anything you want with any play and everybody mm-hmm. can play everything and there are some pretty obvious problems with that, but but also some kind of interesting things that happen as well. Um, you can do it so that, no, you, everybody plays exactly the way they're written. And we can also point to, you know, it certainly takes care of one issue, but some other right. problems. But, you know, once, once we, you get off of either of those two extremes, things become rather muddy rather quickly. And I just wonder if, if this question of copyright and fair use uh, doesn't become perhaps a way of negotiating some of that. It, it, it's yeah. it's possible. I mean, yes, yesterday, maybe two days ago, I was talking with a uh, law student who's writing an article on um, sort of copyright and performance and playing race. You know, so so along the same lines here. And the conversation, what we were what, what we were talking about a couple days ago, uh, was how like you, you can copyright a work, you know, and, but then there's also separately the licensing agreement, um, so mm-hmm. that you can specify in the licensing agreement. You know, any sort of limitations you want to place on the production, right? So most famously, you can think of Samuel Beckett's estate mm-hmm. pulling rights um, if someone changes um, a word or two, uh, you know, from the script or casting like Godot with an all-female cast. So you can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but more usually, right, agents will just you know grant permission to produce a play to whoever comes along yeah. uh, and is willing to pay the royalties for it. And, and then you get the issue of artists who complain publicly about the choices that were made in production like oh i'm offended that um you know uh, sort of in the heights you know had this type of cast you know it's not what i envisioned you know but it's not but you know but it was actually not specified at the level of of granting the permission you know for the production you know so i think yeah. that's where it gets a little bit thorny right um at, at a university stage my th- sense of it is that our obligation is to introduce members of university community to as wide array as diverse an array of work as possible and the reality is you know university theater departments uh with some exceptions are not tremendously diverse (laughs) right you know in terms of by race or, or even um by gender identity and i think that our job is to find a way to stage that work obviously stage readings is is one mechanism that's kind of the least controversial where you can have a 
a reading of an, all, of an August Wilson play with not a single black person up there because you may not have a person and people will be like, hey, it's great you're reading the work, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, you could hire in actors to, you know, you know, to be able to stage some of these texts, you know, but there has to be some way of making the work available. Uh, yeah. to students, and, and that's the challenge. Um, but I will say one last thing. I, I agree with Charlie Musser in this Yale Daily News article, and Charlie teaches at Yale um, in American Studies, uh, and his point was that the, the colorblind casting issues isn't really an, an abstract notion. It's very specific to the individual and the ensemble, uh, and I thought that was yeah. a good point, because we often sort of think abstractly about, like, you know, what do we think about colorblind casting, and not necessarily about the very specific acts of what does it mean to cast this person in this ensemble to play this role? And that's something we need to spend more time thinking about. Yeah. I, th- I, I agree with you very much that the sort of the mission of a university theater should be to represent the, the diversity of the, the nation and the world as much as it's possible to do. And that if you were, you know, if you're working at a university that has very little diversity or just has overwhelmingly you know, white student participation, that's not a good reason to not stage works by playwrights of color or put roles on stage for actors of color. You get into, you know, sticky situations when you have roles to fill for students of color and students aren't auditioning because then you get into strange situations. And I think actually in some cases, unethical situations where students of color are actively recruited by professors Mm -hmm. to take on, you know, to participate in a play. And, you know, in certain cases, it's fine. You know, maybe they're being welcomed into the theater community, which is an exciting thing. But then again, for a student who's not planning on budgeting their time to include theater, to essentially be recruited on the basis of their racial identity, I think that's not right. You know, there is something, you mentioned, uh, Harvey, the sort of strategies for trying to get the work done um at brown in the spring there was a production of a of a play by a a native american playwright and it had roles for you know native american actors and there just weren't the actors in the brown theater community and patricia ybarra published an essay on behalf of the um, department where she talked about a strategy that they called coalitional casting and in this specific case what that meant was actor specifically actors of color though non native american uh, people of color essentially taking on the roles of uh, seminoles and doing so in a sort of spirit of coalitional cooperation to make it possible to stage the play that's an interesting strategy and i think you know in a way it could be it could be abused and manipulated where you could end up with some racial imitation that was just way over the line in the name of coalitional casting. But one thing it puts me in mind of, both in terms of, you know, the broader conversation about ethics and the the sort of trigger warnings conversation is having the conversation with the students and also, you know, putting it in the program note. Like, let let people know what happened along the way to putting a, a student in a role that uh, might have been intended in an ideal world for someone of a different identity. And I think, you know, being willing to take the chance and to even be a little bit wrong is probably a good ethos as well in situations like that. So does that mean, panel, that you are pro-trigger warning racial <laughs> manipulations of casting, but but opposed to trigger warning in terms of content reveal? 
I'm so you're, you're, you're <laughs> cast, pro-cast trigger warning, but anti-plot trigger warning. Am I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding yeah, yeah. the Yeah, and I'm going to put this... Yes. I'm going to put process, this on my process, not <laughs> product. <laughs> I don't. I don't want a trigger warning about the sound of a gunshot, but I do want a trigger warning about an extremely bad casting choice that was made. <laughs> I mean, how about, I think the, how I think about this, trigger warnings for like really like you know like like misconceived um, directorial visions? Right, yes. the play you were about to yeah. see was conceived with a completely misunderstanding of the text. Yeah. As it, I mean, I think dramaturgs should yeah. be able to write these. Like, yes. you were about to yeah. see a work in which the director has really no clue about what's going on in this play and has imposed a completely arbitrary, right, yeah. popular cultural framework upon it. And you should dismiss this, right? It's a little bit like what what Beckett did with the Joanne Acolytus uh, ART production of Endgame, right? Which is the, this is a terrible play. It has nothing to do with what I intended. If you love me and my work, you will leave immediately. Yeah, and, and uh, that was and that was put out in like program notes for spectators. Yeah, to see yeah, it was basically just... like like leave your seat now. And of course, it sold out, and everybody like you know hammered for a ticket and. Yeah, you know, the Beckett estate completely disavowed it. But I mean, that, like Beckett really is our example of trigger warnings, you know, for it, for the work uh, you're about to see. I violating do not authorize. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's actually, you know, it's it's hilarious to think about uh, playwrights doing that. But I do think, in a way, that the onus might be uh, be shifted to the playwrights somewhat in terms of licensing agreements. And if playwrights acknowledge that, you know, I would like I would like colleges to work on this. But I recognize that there may be constraints in diversity of casting and certain things or certain roles, if they need to be cast in different ways, I don't think that violates the you know, intention. In other words, to have some greater latitude and room to experiment and fail at the college level, I think would be good. And for playwrights to acknowledge that such experimentation, even if it, it results in disastrous productions <laughs> maybe they maybe they could um, craft licensing agreements along those lines if you're a, a playwright who would like to write your uh, response you can send your hate mail to panel <laughs> at, that was Washington University St. Louis right? no, no, no. So, yeah send it to the podcast email address oh um, there you go and then we can then we can all read it yes what is our um, email address we don't think we mentioned it's it? um I believe it's hosts at on tap podcast.com no yes. no hosts at ontappod.com yes. i should know that yes. i should know that or post thoughts on facebook right yes yes or post, post your post and your remember that we we embrace facebook. as everyone that the essence of drama is conflict indeed indeed um <laughs> well i think we have managed to cover a broad range of serious ethical quandaries with our typical levity and yes. and verve um, See, ethics can be fun Ethics can be fun. Um, why don't we move into our drafts segment? This, of course, um, is the segment where we talk about our sort of forming thoughts, our um, things that have crossed our mind. Pull up a stool to the on tap bar and pour yourself a foamy draft. Sarah, what do you have on draft? So, uh, so I it keep in trying to keep with ethics. I. Uh, would like to first uh, just say that the symposium at Bard uh, that I attended in September was amazing. Um, and kudos to Miriam Felton-Dansky and Jacob Gallagher-Ross for organizing that. And this was on surveillance? This was surveillance, uh, spectatorship in an age of surveillance. Right. Uh, and it was just a great, I, you know, I was on a panel with uh, Elisa Morrison and James Harding. It was just a great, great event. So kudos to them. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to 
later this week, I'll be at UT Austin uh, as part of the, the performance as a public practice um, program and uh, working with Charlotte Canning and presenting some of my work on digital historiography. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. But in terms of thinking about ethics, I'm also looking ahead to Aster coming up in early November and the ethics of the rushed or underdeveloped uh, conference paper uh, <laughs> for a friend. Uh, and, and I just, and I would like to just sort of, my draft is sort of like a defense of the, of the bad underdeveloped conference paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that I really encourage our colleagues to submit work that is underthought, under-researched, radically under-theorized, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit risky, kind of crazy, and, and underdeveloped as, uh, within conferences. Because lately, like, I just feel like everybody's conference papers are just, are they're, they're just much too safe. And they, yes. they're following the same form of like, here's a theory, and X, Y, and Z smart person or persons have said this theory, and then let me give you the theory or, or the, the, the theatrical or performative examples of this theory. And, and then I will sum up, um, I don't, I'm so sorry, I've gone over time, but you know, you get the idea, I'm sort yes, of, a, yes. and thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and so yeah. I would just love like people to write shorter, crazier, really wronger conference yeah. papers. And so yeah. it, you know, uh, to do this, and apologies in advance to my dear fellow seminarians uh, of the theater and transmedia working group, I'm just gonna go out on a limb and start this process by writing a really under-researched, underdeveloped, and, uh, uh, an underthought conference paper for Aster. So there you go. That's, That's my draft. It's a bold. It's a bold call. One I appreciate. I think we should create a like a podcast working group for one of these uh, conferences. You know, just for that type of work where it's um, experimental, thinking through um, topics. Right. You know, sort of approaches to theater performance, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a. I think that's a good idea. We also have to get our fantasy performance department rosters set harvey what do you have on draft for us this week i have been thinking about sponsorships uh sort of like foundation really corporate sponsorships for academic associations right so if you go to many conferences uh you'll notice depending upon you know which field it is in but if you go to many conferences you'll find yourself sort of walking in your name badge is sort of sponsored by some company your lanyard could be as well you know like you walk into the keynote address and there's like and there's a a big sign that says brought to you by you know i don't know budweiser and what what conferences are you going to we're not budweiser but i make that one up but i did go to i I did go to a tennessee williams conference that was sponsored by um hendrix gen and 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 that's appropriate (laughs) and you know but but i've been thinking about you know what does it mean because i mean there are so many academic associations out there these days and many of us are members of two to 12 of them. And it's expensive, right? You know, so how do you sort of maintain the, the focus of each individual group you know, without sort of bankrupting you know, individual members of the academy? And the way you do that is by sponsorships. But then this leads to a kind of ethical issue, right? You know, sort of like, you know, from whom um, are you willing to accept money? You know, yeah. w- would you be willing to accept money from you know, a corporation uh, or from a foundation? Where you, with, 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 with whom you might have some sort of issues, some, some ethical issues, you, if it allows you to offer uh, fellowships to graduate students, right? If it underwrites uh, research in an area, to, area that needs to develop, right? So, so that's what I'm thinking about, sort of where do you draw the lines um, in relationship to sponsorships um, and ethics? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in conferences are already somewhat sponsored by ads that are placed in the program somewhat. I feel like a t- the first response to that would be, oh, so you want to have, you know, the Aster plenary session brought to you by Mountain Dew, how crass and how neoliberal. But in a way, we're quite sponsored. I mean, right. I work in a building named for a pharmaceutical company right. <laughs> that sells generic prescription drugs and and the corporate sponsorship of academic research or the government sponsorship of academic research is actually a very common practice we shouldn't pretend that we're not sponsored in some way right so you know for example if you have you know if your if your conference is sponsored or your 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 reception is sponsored by mountain dew that's one thing (laughs) you know you know what if you know Trump Enterprises says they want to sponsor your reception, right? You know, what if some other group or organization wants to do that? So where do you draw the line? It's an interesting, interesting question. It makes me think, um, though, Harvey, of like, you know, this whole question of like, you know, I'm not selling out because no one's buying. Um, and I'm, I'm also makes me think like, what, what would the, what would the theater and performance event be that would be sponsored by Mountain Dew? And I had this vision of like, you know, X theater, right? You know, where like, you know, people have to do like really crazy dangerous stunts while delivering, you know, yeah. uh, you know, talks from the back of like, you know, motorcycles or something. So I think yeah, yeah. I feel like Mountain Dew would sponsor 500 clown because they're all about non-safety <laughs> clowning. There you go. Um, and panel, what, are you, uh, what about you? What are you working on? I yeah, mine is um, it actually has a little bit to do with uh, Philip Zarilli. Um, it really is about the theater histories and, and introduction textbook. I usually teach this uh, in my intro to graduate studies seminar, and we spend a couple weeks reading it carefully and then debating the advantages and disadvantages of, of this really innovative theater textbook. And so I, th- I threw the third edition on the syllabus, which is new this year, not even thinking about it, and then um, was looking at my notes from the second edition, and boy, they really overhauled it. They mm. overhauled um, theater histories and introduction for the third edition. And so I wanted to give kudos to the editors there. Um, Tobin Nellhaus is now the general editor, mm. and Bruce McConaughey and uh, Carol Sorgenfry and Tamara Underreiner are all editors. Philip Zarelli was an editor and contributor to it, but he is not for this edition, but his material is still in there. Okay. You know, it's a really ambitious and exciting theater textbook. I think they really get the global scope of it down. One of the more interesting changes they made in this edition is that they heavily reduced the the coverage of ritual and so in the first part there's very there's there's much less discussion of of ritual performance practice than there was in previous editions and you learn in the general introduction that the reason they did this is that they now consider the cambridge anthropologists to have been thoroughly debunked on the basis of archaeological evidence um and this is something you know Cambridge anthropologists, I think a lot of us learned that there's a kind of critiquable evolutionary narrative to it, and so it's problematic, et cetera, et cetera. But they really put their the their foot down and said, okay, n- no more of this theater evolving from ritual, which I think is a bold move, and one of several bold moves in this textbook. So, And I have heard, I haven't taught it to undergraduates, but uh, Rob Henke, um, my colleague here, teaches it in the first semester of his of our theater history cycle and he says it teaches really well um as well so um, that's something i might have to incorporate it's very cool 
So with that, listeners, thank you for um, downloading uh, another edition of the podcast and stay tuned for next time. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.